start in verse 21. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over four former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let me pray. Lord, we uh, come before your word humbly, knowing that we need your spirit to illumine our minds, to help us understand the truth that you've taught. And Lord, we need your spirit to continue to soften and change our hearts um, so that we will respond with love and joy to your word. Lord, we pray that you would help us this morning as we understand what it means that Christ is our redeemer, that we have been redeemed, that we have been bought with a price, and Lord, that we would exult in that truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you guys have heard the word redemption tossed around in culture, right? I mean, if you go to the grocery store and you buy a soda or some kind of water bottle, there's, there's usually, what, a redemption value placed on it, right? If you return it, you can get a redemption value. So you've heard that word. Or more, probably more appropriately, you've heard redemption used in terms of like a, a football game or a basketball game or something like that where some guy makes the play and just completely blows it, Right? You guys have seen these things happen. And after he completely blows it, this play, maybe later on in the game, he pulls off this incredible play that, that turns the game around. He wins the game. It happened with um, um, Cal and Oregon when they were playing a couple of weeks ago, if you guys saw that game. One of the receivers, or excuse me, the defensive backs, one of the defensive backs kept blowing it again and again. And Oregon, the receiver in Oregon was burning him up. And all of a sudden, at the end of the game, I mean, Oregon is down by was seven points, right? Just down by seven points. They're marching down the field with seconds left. The guy throw the quarterback throws a pass. The the receiver goes to catch it, and he's going. He catches it, and he's about to cross the end zone and tie the game. And the Cal player just nails him. He drops the ball. It hits the end zone, bounces out of bounds, and it's a touchback. Cal gets the ball back, and the game's over. Oregon loses. And, uh, of course, it's really anticlimactic if you're rooting for Oregon at that point. Um, but, but what was interesting is immediately the announcer said that defensive back just redeemed himself. Did you guys, hear, you guys ever hear that statement? He just redeemed himself. We use that word a lot. And in fact, it's used in one of my favorite movies, Dumb and Dumber. Uh, <laughs> Think what you want of my level of intelligence or maturity. That's okay. Maybe I'm an adolescent, but it's a funny movie. And there's a scene in the movie where this word is used that I love. The scene is this. There's two characters, Harry and Lloyd, and 
they're on a cross-country trek in a giant sheepdog, right? It's a van dressed as a giant sheepdog. And they're driving across, and um, the, play, the character played by Jim Carrey is driving, and he kind of falls asleep at a turn, having a really odd dream, and falls asleep at this turnoff and misses the turnoff, takes the wrong turnoff. And they're supposed to be going to Colorado, ends up driving them into the Dakotas out in the middle of nowhere. And so here they are in this giant sheepdog. The other character wakes up, looks at him and said, and they realize they're out in the middle of nowhere and they ran out of gas. All right. And it's the morning and he's like, and they just have this big blowout fight. What were you doing? And how'd you get us here? And we're in the middle of nowhere and da, da, da. There's a huge fight and they go their separate ways. And so the character, not Jim character. Carrie's character, where the other character gets out and he starts walking. He just walks down the road and he walks away and, and he's walking and he's walking. He's walking forever and they have dramatic music in the background, of course. And, and all of a sudden, you see the scene where Jim Carrey is riding this little moped, right? He's got his helmet on. He's riding the moped and he's he, coming down the road and he rides up and he, he gets up to his friend and he's like, you know, he's like, look at, and basically he says, basically it's like, how do you like this hog? Right. And he rings a little girl's bell on it, you know, and, and uh, he goes, it gets like 60 miles of the gallon. And, and his friend looks at him and goes, Lloyd, just, just Lloyd, just when I thought you couldn't go, get any dumber, you go and do something like this and totally redeem yourself. Right. <laughs> and they both end up on the moped driving away. Um, well, what does that word mean? Redeem yourself. You redeemed yourself. You were redeemed. We, we hear it thrown around in the culture. What do we mean by it? Well, what we mean is that in some way, someone has lost credibility or degraded themselves and they do something to get back their credibility or to earn back their respect, right? That's what we mean in our culture when we use that word redeemed. But I want to tell you the Bible, when it uses that idea of redemption, means so much more than that. It means so much more than that. In fact, um, the Bible talks about the concept of redemption all over the place. It is probably one of the greatest titles used of Jesus in the Bible. God is called our Redeemer in the Bible. B.B. Warfield, actually, a Princeton theologian in the late 1800s, early 1900s, argued that it's probably the greatest title used of Jesus in the Bible, the title of Redeemer. In fact, the co- concept of God as our Redeemer goes through all of Scripture. Just listen to some of it. I just want to read you some. Job 19.25, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. Psalm 19.14, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my Redeemer. Psalm 78, 35, they remembered that God was their rock, the most high God, their redeemer. Isaiah 41, 14, fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I'm the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your redeemer is the holy one of Israel. Isaiah 43, 14, thus says the Lord, your redeemer, the holy one of Israel. Isaiah 44, 6, thus says the Lord, the king of Israel and his redeemer. I'm the first and the last. Beside me, there is no God. Isaiah 44, 24. Thus says the Lord, your redeemer who formed you from the womb. I'm the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. Isaiah 47, 4. Our redeemer, the Lord of hosts, is his name. Isaiah 48, 17. Thus says the Lord, your redeemer, 
the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 49, 7, thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One. Isaiah 49, 16, then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord, your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Isaiah 54, 5, for your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. Isaiah 54, 8, in overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Isaiah 59, 20, and a Redeemer will come to Zion. Jeremiah 50, 34, their Redeemer is strong. The Lord of hosts is his name. Is that point made clearly enough? That's just a few. Just a few. I could have listed multiple scriptures where God is called our Redeemer. This title used of him is one of the great titles of scripture used of God. What does it mean? Well, two weeks ago, we talked about justification. The idea that you're justified or declared righteous as a free gift by the grace of God. When we talk about justification, we're using courtroom terminology. It's as if I have taken you into the courtroom and spoke to you of your salvation from the vantage point of a legal declaration made about you. And the legal declaration is that you are justified or declared righteous. When we talk about redemption, we now walk into the marketplace and we look at your salvation from the perspective of the marketplace where slaves are bought and sold and redeemed. That's the picture that you get. See, we are justified by grace as a free gift justified by grace as a free gift. And while the gift didn't cost us anything, it did cost God, didn't it? It cost God the life of his own son. Look at chapter three, verse 24. We'll look at the rest of this. He's saying all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And in verse 24, he says, and are justified by his grace as a gift. And what does that gift come through? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It says that we get this free gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. He had to redeem us. He had to pay a price. What does that mean? What exactly does it mean that he had to redeem us? Well, I want to look at two um, backgrounds to this. One is just first century Rome to whom Paul is writing. And what they would have understand or understood the meaning of redemption to be. The second group, the second thing I want to look at is the Old Testament. What would they have understood in the Old Testament by the word redeemer, redemption? Because it's when you bring both of these concepts together that we understand exactly how Paul is using it. I mean, obviously, Paul would have used language in a context that was intelligible to the people to whom he's writing, right? And he's writing to a group of people who have an understanding of a concept of redemption in the first century. Here's their concept of it. In the first century, if a soldier... An enemy combatant was captured during war. If they happened to catch one, what would happen was they would take the enemy soldier and they would make him into a slave. No matter how high up on the rung he was, 
But actually, the higher he was as, as, in level of, as far as how aristocratic he was in his homeland, you know how powerful and wealthy and, and, uh, and you know, well-known he was in his homeland? The higher he was up on that scale, the more worthless he was to them as a slave because they knew he had soft hands and wasn't a very good worker. He wasn't ready for slavery. So what they would generally do is they would take these enemy soldiers and they'd say, you know what we need to do? We'll sell them back to the enemy. In other words, we'll capture your soldiers. And then this is what they did. They would sell them back. If the defeated army or if the country that had their soldiers captured, captured were willing to pay, was willing to pay the price, they could buy the soldiers back. Even the family could buy the soldier back. And the word they use for that is the word redemption. You could redeem them. It's the same word Paul is using here. You'd redeem them. And you know what they had to do to buy them back? They had to pay a ransom price. They had to pay a ransom. They had to ransom them to buy them back. You could actually pay a ransom for yourself in the first century. If you were a captured enemy combatant or you were captured for some reason, you could save up money and somehow buy yourself out. In fact, what would often happen is if no one redeemed a guy, he would or a gal, they would save up. They would earn enough money and they would have to go to a temple of one of the gods and dedicate the money to one of the gods. And when they did, they would be free and they would actually inscribe their name into the temple of one of these gods and say how much they paid and the fact that they've been redeemed. What's really interesting to me is we've actually found some of these inscriptions in archaeological digs. We found some of them. We've read like we have. There's one. I, I, I'm not going to read it to you this morning, but there's one of a woman who bought her freedom and it has her whole thing in there, how she sacrificed to the God Apollos and, you know, this whole thing and, and, and bought her freedom there. And that, that was not unusual. They would have understood this word to be paying a ransom in order to buy something back or buy someone out of slavery to buy their freedom. That's how they would have understood this word. But that's not the only place that we see the tradition for the use of this word. We also see it in the Old Testament. It has an equally rich tradition in the Old Testament. What's meant by it in the Old Testament? It turned to Exodus chapter 15. Turn to Exodus chapter 15. Because the major understanding for redemption, really the primary understanding for redemption, even in the use by Paul, is found in the Old Testament. And Exodus chapter 15 is really where this concept really starts to unfold in the Old Testament. There's a song that is sung after Israel is delivered from Egypt. Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord saying, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed glorious, gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast in the sea and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. And the greatness of your majesty, your over, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of the nostril of your nostrils, the waters piled up. By the way, that's a great verse to take people like if you're ever um, talking with somebody who says, 
Well, God has a body because the Bible refers to his hands or his eyes. The question you need to take them to this and ask them, so are we to imagine that a giant nose came down and blew the Red Sea open? Um, Obviously, it's figurative here. Um, But he goes on, he says, The flood stood up in a heap, the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people you have redeemed. You've guided them by your strength to your holy abode. So this concept of Israel being delivered from Egypt is spoken of as redemption. Now, what some people will argue is that, hey, you know, by that word redemption, then all they could mean is deliverance. They don't mean the paying of a price. They just mean deliverance because certainly God did not pay anything to Egypt to release them, did he? So they say, well, that can't be what redemption means. In fact, in Deuteronomy 9.26, this word comes up again where it says, And I prayed to the Lord, O Lord God, destroy not your people and your heritage, whom you've redeemed through your greatness, whom you've brought out of Egypt with the mighty hand. What does he mean, redeemed? People say, well, there was no payment made. What's the payment that God made to Pharaoh? He didn't, right? But it does say he stretched out his mighty hand. In other words, God exerted power that he did not have to. Did God really need to stretch out his mighty hand and exert this kind of power, bring plagues upon Egypt to free the Jews? Did he need to do that? He's the God of the universe. He could have easily had said what? You're free. Right? He could have just taken right out of Pharaoh's hand. He had to go through all of this. Right? He just went through all these steps, took him through these plagues, stretched out his power. He spent himself in freeing them, and he didn't have to. He worked miracles. He brought plagues. He was redeeming them. Like there's ample other teaching on redemption in the Old Testament. For example, when it talks about a man redeeming his house or his animals or his own life, it talks about that. Look at Leviticus chapter 25. We'll just step there, and I could. Go on, by the way, all day talking about redemption in the Old Testament, but I won't. Look at Leviticus chapter 25. I'll stop with this passage here. Look specifically at verse 24. This is the book that I'm sure so many of you spend so much time meditating on. It's a great, great foundation piece to understanding so much of what happens in the sacrificial system and and how Jesus fulfills that. But if you look at verse 24... We'll start there at chapter 25, verse 24. And in all the country you possess, it's giving these directions to the Israelites. In all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. If a man has no one to redeem it and then himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem it, let him calculate the years since he sold it and pay back the balance to the man whom he sold it 
and then return to his property. See, they're having to pay a price to get back what was theirs. Verse 27, let him calculate the year since he sold it and pay back the balance of the man to whom he sold it and return to his property. Verse 28, but if he has not sufficient means to recover it, then what he sold shall remain in the hand of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. In the Jubilee, it shall be released and he shall return to his property. If a man sells a dwelling house in a walled city, he may redeem it within a year of its sale. For a full, full year, he shall have the right of redemption. If it is not redeemed within a full year, then the house in the walled city shall belong to the perpetuity, in perpetuity to the buyer throughout his generations. It shall not be released in the Jubilee. That's dealing with house or land. What about animals or your own life? Look at verse 44 in the same chapter. Down to verse 44. As for your male and female slaves, whom you may have, you may buy male and female slaves from among the nations that are around you. You may also buy from among the strangers who, who sojourn with you and their clans that are with you who have been born in your land, and they may be your property. You may bequeath them to your sons after you to inherit a possession forever. You may make slaves of them, but over your brothers, the people of Israel, you shall not rule one over the other ruthlessly. If a stranger or sojourner with you becomes rich and your brother beside him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger sojourner with you or to a member of the stranger's clan, then after he is sold, he may be redeemed. One of his brothers may redeem him or his uncle or his cousin may redeem him or a close relative from his clan may redeem him. Or if he grows rich, he may redeem himself. And we're not, we don't have time to get into the issue of slavery and the Bible and all of that. Here's the point. When someone was sold into slavery, the Bible talks about the fact that they are able to be redeemed or bought out of slavery by paying a price. That price is referred to as a ransom. So if we understand the Old Testament understanding of redemption, that you pay a price to buy something back that's enslaved. And if we understand the first century use of the word, that you pay a price to buy something back that's enslaved. If we understand that, then we just need to turn to the New Testament and see how it's used. Look how it's used. Look at back to Romans chapter 3, verse 24 and 25. Because we know there was a price for our redemption. Starting in verse 24, we are justified or declared righteous by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And what was the price that was paid? Verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. In other words, Jesus was the one who satisfied the wrath of God. His life, his blood was the payment that was made to ransom us and bring us redemption. His blood was the ransom price. So Paul's talking about Jesus says this in Mark 10, 45, doesn't he? The son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as what? A ransom for many. Jesus bought us. He gave his life as the ransom that redeemed us from our slavery. Slavery to what? Sin. In other words, we were bought with the price. And the price was the life of Jesus Christ. What did he buy? He bought our freedom. That's why he can say in John 8, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you what? Free. 
I want us to understand that Jesus provided for our redemption now, but there's also a future sense to it. So there's an already not yet to redemption. He's already redeemed us. And yet there's also a future sense where we are not yet fully redeemed. What do I mean by that? Well, let's look first at the now sense, the way we are currently redeemed. Romans 3.24 talks about in the present that we're redeemed. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says this same thing, that Jesus is our redemption. If you look at 1.30, it says this, He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our, sanctific- our righteousness and our sanctification and redemption. We are currently redeemed or currently bought. Ephesians 1 verse 7, same thing pops up again. It's talking about a current redemption. In verse 7, in him we, ha- we have, present tense, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of trespasses. Colossians 1.14 says it. Galatians 3 is the one I want you to look at though right now. Galatians 3.13, he says this. Speaking in the present tense. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. We have to understand that we're currently, if we're in Christ, currently redeemed. We've been bought. We're owned by him. But that's not the end of the story. We look forward to a future redemption. There's more. There's more to the promise of redemption than just that. In Romans chapter 8, Paul follows up on this and talks about the furtherance of this. He makes this comment in verse 23. Says this. And not only the creation, he's talking about the creation waiting for its freedom, its redemption. He says this, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. In other words, we're waiting for a future redemption. And that redemption is the resurrection, is it not? It's when Jesus returns and resurrects us and our bodies are no longer subject to the slavery of sin in the fall. In Christ, we have been freed from it spiritually. But our bodies are still subject to it. And we know that we're subject to the fall physically, don't we? We're all experiencing it. Some of us are further along in our experience of the effects of the fall than others, right? Some of us are. But we all will eventually wind down and die. All of us. It's coming. I I sometimes think of time like a stalker. That sounds really morbid, I know, but it's not intended to be. Time is like a stalker. He's chasing you and eventually he'll catch you. She's getting closer and closer all the time, right? And that'll be it. That's the reality. That's the reality. But there's glorious good news in that. And the glorious good news is that we have been redeemed. And when he catches us, absent from the body is what? Present with the Lord. Thank God. I hope he hurries it up. Right? Why is he taking so long? Because I could be with the Lord. Further than that, not only is that the case, but there's a day coming when Christ returns 
that not only my soul is redeemed, my body will be actually redeemed. It will be resurrected and perfected. This body. Now, some of you may be thinking, I don't know if I want this body back. <laughs> but it's the perfect state. You won't be worrying about the vain things we worry about now. Ephesians 4.30 talks about this. It says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. There's a future redemption. Jesus says it in Luke 21.28. He says this. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. We're talking about this final sense. And finally, at the consummation of all things, we'll join the saints in singing this song in Revelation 5, 9 through 10. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth. So this ransom price is paid, which is the blood of Christ. But to who? Who is the ransom price paid to? You know, there was a theory that was popular for some time called the ransom to Satan theory of the atonement. We're talking about the atonement. And there was a, a philosophy talking or a theology called ransom to Satan. In other words, the payment was made to Satan. You see the popular nature of this show up in a book like the lion, the witch and the wardrobe. Have you guys read that? If you haven't, you've probably seen the movie, right? Because you were probably too lazy to read the book. <laughs> but, uh, but you've probably at least seen the movie. And in the movie, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Aslan is the character of who? Who does he play? Jesus, right? He's the Christ, the mess- messianic figure. And the white witch is who? Satan. Well, the kid's sin, the human sin... And so a price has to be paid, right? Because of the law, the price has to be paid. And who does it have to be paid to? The white witch, right? She gets a payment. Well, Aslan doesn't want to see one of the humans die. So what does Aslan do? He gives his own life as a payment to the white witch. And he pays off the white witch, but then he kind of tricks her because she doesn't expect him to raise from the dead, right? The ransom to Satan theory of the atonement is this. Because we sinned, we are rightfully owned by Satan. He owns us. He has a right to us. And he has to be paid off. And what he requires is blood. And so God sends Jesus. And Jesus spills his blood as a payment to Satan. Satan thinks he's victorious. He's got Jesus down in hell. He doesn't recognize who Jesus is. And Jesus raises from the dead, tricks Satan, he becomes the great, really the great wiser than a serpent, right? Wiser than even Satan. Outthinks him, outsmarts him, tricks him, raises from the dead, and now Satan has nothing. God's redeemed the people. He's paid the ransom price, and, and Satan is left with not even the Son of God. In other words, God is some kind of big trickster, right? And that's the theory. That is not what the Bible says. The debt is not owed to Satan. Be very clear about that. The debt for our sin is not payable to Satan. He doesn't own us. The debt is owned, owed to God. I mean, Romans 325 directly says that. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. 
If you keep going to receive by faith, propitiation is the word satisfaction. He atoned for, he satisfied who? Satisfied the wrath of God. Goes on, it says, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier, the one who has faith in Christ. God had to exercise his justice against sin. And he did on Jesus. Jesus was the one who was paid. Or paid, he used Jesus to pay back himself. He's the one who was owed. God was. Jesus was the ransom price. So what's the application of this? That's great. Okay, Jesus redeemed us. Some people go, oh, that, I don't know what to do with that except to say, praise God. And that, that's definitely the first step. Right? Praise God. He redeemed you, bought you back. You're owned by him. Right? You're free. What's the application? We're finally free to serve Christ. Finally free to serve Christ if we're redeemed. John chapter 8, if you look there, John chapter 8, he says this. Jesus talks about this and says this. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him in verse 31, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. I've heard this talked about a lot of times. It's like we're set free to do whatever we want. Now we're free to sin or not to sin. Is that right? No, we're free to be slaves of righteousness. We're free to do righteousness. We weren't free to that before. It means we are finally free from slavery to sin and thus slaves of righteousness. When the Jews objected to Jesus' statement about being free, they said, you know what? We are free. What are you talking about? You know what Jesus' response was? In verse 34, he says this. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. So you're not free to sin. You run back to sin. Guess what you become again? A slave of sin. You're running back to your old slave master. And you've been freed from him. Paul talks about it in Romans 6. In verse 15, you don't have to turn there, but he says this in verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. That's the freedom that's ours in Christ. We're slaves of righteousness. And that happens because he redeemed us. He redeemed us. Second, you're owned by God. Not only are you free to be righteous, but you're owned by by God, you are owned by God. Brad, you know, came in here and if you were here last week, he just threw this gauntlet down. So I have to spend a lot of time on it. But he made this comment that Jesus, when he paid for you on the cross, when he died on the cross, he bought you out. Your life is not yours anymore. He bought you out. In 
1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, Paul's talking about sexual immorality. He tells them not to commit it. In verse 19, he says this, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You know, Paul takes it further than just sexual immorality. In chapter 7, he goes on and says this, verse 22 of 1 Corinthians. For he who called, who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. You're not your own. How, how does that change the way that we see our dreams or demands or desires? How does it change it? See, Brad walked in here last week and said, as a missionary who gave up his life to Papua New Guinea for over 20 years and said, having a dream isn't a sin. Living it out is. Wow, that's pretty strong. I mean, is that true? Is living out my dream a sin? Well, I'll say this. If your dream is not what Christ wants, then living it out is in fact a sin because your life does not belong to you. My life does not belong to me. It belongs to Jesus Christ. And what he wants is what matters, not what we want. And he isn't saying, you know what? You give me my dream. You give me your dreams and then I'll, I'll just kind of bless them. And then that will be how we'll operate. It's not what he says, is it? It's my life is your life is mine and I'll do with it what I want. We belong to him. We've been bought out completely. So all that matters is ultimately his will, not ours. Jesus understood that, didn't he? He understood it. He modeled it for us. I mean, he was in the garden of Gethsemane and he says, as a man, does he want to go to the cross and die? Not really. He knows it's going to be painful and he's crying out to the Lord. And he finally says, you know what? But not my will, but thine be done. What matters is the will of his father. And he said, I always did the will of my father because I'm his. And you know what? We're Christ's. And so we always do his will because we're his. Not our own. What matters is what he wants, not what we want. And you know what he ultimately wants? He wants his son's name to be proclaimed to the nations. That's what he wants. Made it crystal clear. I want my son's name to be proclaimed to the nations. And we're his. We ought to get about his business. Finally, not only are we owned by God and free to righteousness, but we, but the church is owned by God. The church is owned by God. Acts chapter 20. Actually, you know, studying this kind of blew me out because I've read Acts 20, this command of Paul to the Ephesian elders multiple times. But there was something in it I hadn't really paid much attention to before. And I want to read this to you. Acts chapter 20, starting verse 28. Paul is, or Paul is writing to the elders at the church of Ephesus. He's giving them some commands. Here's what you to do while I'm gone. Okay, in my absence. And here's what he tells them in verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, 
which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Remember the, remembering that for three years, I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Paul grounds his whole command of the Ephesian elders in the way they're to exhaust themselves in the work of the ministry. In the fact that the church is the blood-bought bride of Christ. Grounds it in that. Belongs to him. If Jesus gave his own life to purchase the church, then this body, this body, is the blood-bought church of Christ, isn't it? Sovereign grace belongs to Jesus. How ought we to treat such a precious belonging of Christ's? How ought we to treat such a precious belonging of Christ? If he gave his life for her, shouldn't we likewise pour out our lives for her? See, Jesus, Jesus gave his life, poured out his blood for Sovereign Grace Church. What does that tell us about how we ought to live our lives for her? If we are members of it. We certainly can't walk away from her because of petty complaints, can we? Certainly can't believe we can be those who merely attend and who never serve. Never pray. Never care for others in that body. And I'll tell you this, I'll go a step further. We certainly have to take desperately serious the charge to guard the flock. Jesus bought the church with his own blood. That's the ground the elders and pastor, of the elders and pastors' responsibility to guard the doctrine of the church. Do you want to know why I'll work myself to exhaustion? I will work myself to exhaustion. Studying doctrine teaching others and fighting off the wolves. You want to know why? Because this is the blood-bought church of Jesus Christ. I can do no less. To do any less would be to devalue the blood of Christ. Jesus is truly the great redeemer. He's the redeemer of sovereign grace church. Redeemer of sovereign grace church. And the best response we can give to his redemptive work is worship. That's the best response we can give. It's a great hymn um, that you guys have probably heard, and I'm not going to sing for you because that would be frightening. Jesus may have bought this church, but he didn't give me the right to sing in it. Um, praise God for that. Huh? But says this great hymn. He says this. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great redeemer's praise. The glories of my God and king, the triumphs of his grace. My gracious master and my God assist me to proclaim to spread through all the earth abroad, the honors of thy name. Jesus, the name that charms our fears, that bids our sorrows cease Tis music in the sinner's ears, Tis life and health and peace. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. 
He speaks and listening to his voice, new life the dead receive. The mournful broken hearts rejoice, the humble poor believe. Hear him, ye deaf, his praise, ye dumb, your loosened tongues employ. Ye blind, behold, your Savior come and leap, ye lame, for joy. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. The glories of my God and King, the triumphs of his grace. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, thank you for redemption. We thank you, Lord, that you were willing to send your son, that you did send your son to pour out his life for us, to give his life as a ransom for many. Thank you for that, Lord. We thank you that you bought us back from our slavery to sin. And that in Christ, you satisfied your wrath against us. And that, Lord, because of the payment of Jesus' blood, we are redeemed. We are the blood-bought church of Christ. I pray, Lord, as such, that we will understand that Sovereign Grace Church, that every other local church that, that is under your, your son's headship also, Lord, belong to you. And Lord, that we would not, we would not in any way, shape or form devalue the blood that you've poured out for your church. But Lord, that we would give our lives for us, for her as you have. Your name, Lord, deserves nothing less. And we pray you'd be exalted in what we do as a result of what you have done for us. In Jesus name. Amen. The band could come forward um, for communion. I would appreciate that.